Good morning again. <clears throat> if you are, are new to Trinity, I want to extend a special welcome to you this morning. We are really glad that you are here. I would love to meet you after the service. I'll be out in the back in the foyer. Uh, and I also want to encourage you, if you are new and you would like to, uh, to let us know you are here using the QR code on the back of your order of worship uh, so that we can help you get connected to Trinity. Speaking of the back of your order of worship, uh, one other item I want to highlight is the evening worship and potluck dinner next week that will be here at Trinity with one of our sister churches, Christ Central. Uh, Christ Central is a, a church plant that's just a few minutes away from here, and it's pastored by a former Trinity pastor, Joe Magri, who was, who was sent out by Trinity to shepherd this church plant. And we're going to be hearing from Joe in both of our morning services next week during our ministry update. He's going to tell us about this good work uh, that God has been doing in their midst. And then their whole congregation is going to join us in the evening uh, for the potluck and for worship. And so we really want to encourage you to, to come to, to worship, to be nourished by worship, and to support uh, this partnership in the gospel that we share with Christ Central. Now, it's been a little while since we've had a true potluck here, okay? And so, so let's make it a good one, right? Especially with guests coming. They're going to be bringing food as well. Uh, and I'm guessing they're going to bring some, some really cool food. Um, but let, let's make it a good one for them. Uh, we, we want everyone who comes to truly feel lucky that they came uh, to this. That wasn't very funny, I guess, huh? Um, <laughs> We, we want them to be theo theologically accurate. They're like a pastor's talking about luck. That can't be. No, we want them to be blessed. We are going to have a pot blessed next week. Okay, so let's, let's bless people with our pots next week. I wasn't trying to go there, but you didn't laugh the first time. And so, um, my kids are dying over here, okay? So, uh, <laughs> In all seriousness, uh, last week we resumed our sermon series in the book of Genesis uh, after several weeks in the Gospel of John during uh, Advent and Christmas. And we started into the second major section of Genesis with God's call to Abram in Genesis 12. And we saw in this chapter that, that God calls Abraham to leave his family. He calls him to leave the false gods that his family worshipped so that God might give Abram a great land and that he might make Abram into a great people who enjoyed a relationship of blessing with God and so that through Abraham, all the families of the earth might share in this relationship of blessing with God. And we're going to go back and, and hit some of the material in Genesis 13 and 14 uh, next week. But today we're going to skip over 13 and 14 and move directly into Genesis 15, where God reaffirms and builds on the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And so please turn with me in your Bibles or in your order of worship to Genesis 15. Uh, as I mentioned last week, at this point, God has not yet changed Abram's name to Abraham. And so you might hear me alternating between the two names. Genesis 15, 1. <clears throat> After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together for the teaching of it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who draws near to us through your word to speak to us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would stir in our hearts this morning. You would soften our hearts to be humble receivers of your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to, to faithfully proclaim it um, and that you would help us all to submit and to be uh, given life through your life-giving word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed that there's, there's a bit of an interesting ceremony going on here in, in Genesis 15, and uh, we're not going to really get to that until a little bit later in the sermon, so I just want to acknowledge it now and, and give a little teaser about what is to come now, I am, I'm not a big Harry Potter fan, um, more, of a, more of a Tolkien guy, um, but, uh, and, and I've actually been spurned and, and much maligned even by members of my own family for, simply for my lack of zeal toward Harry Potter. But, but the Potter series has, is probably one of the best modern 
um, albeit fictional, but one of the best modern connections to this ceremony going on in Genesis 15. Uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the Potter series, there's, um, there's a, a powerful figure named Severus Snape, and he enters into what is called an unbreakable vow with Narcissa Malfoy. And they, they join hands with one another, and a, and a spell is, is cast over their handshake, and there's like electric, electricity going on when the spell is taken. But, but basically what they are saying is that if they fail to follow through on their part of the vow, they're agreeing to be killed for their failure to come through. And again, this is just a teaser for what's to come later, but that, that gives us a little bit of insight into this unbreakable vow that we see going on in Genesis 15. Our outline this morning follows very closely along the storyline of, of, of this fascinating encounter with God. As we move through the passage, we're going to see the substance of God's promise. We're going to see the weakness of human understanding. And we're going to see God's assurance in our weakness. And we're actually going to see each of them twice. Uh, first in verses 1 through 5, and then again in verses 7 through 21, as there is a cycle to this conversation in which God makes a promise, and then Abram asks a question, and then God graciously responds with a word and a sign of assurance, and then this is repeated one time. And so first, let's look at the substance of God's promise. The substance of God's promise. In verse 1, God's comforting words to Abram, fear not, uh, they, those words might be in reference to a few different fears that Abram uh, may have had, uh, but they are most likely in reference to the frightening prospect of the Lord of the universe coming to visit a finite creature like one of us and speaking to him in a vision. That is a scary thing. But God reassures Abram, fear not, and then he proceeds to make a promise. The promise is, is first stated generically, uh, more generically, in verse 1. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Well, what is that great reward? Well, we see the substance of that great reward specified in, in the second cycle of the conversation in verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God, in his kindness, is reaffirming to Abraham his original promise in Genesis 12 to give Abram and his offspring the, the land of Canaan. It is a good, fertile, abundant land, as we come to find out, where God's people will enjoy his blessing and where they will walk in his ways and where God will be glorified as the whole world was created to be in the beginning. This is the vision behind God giving Abram and his offspring the land of Canaan. Now you may, uh, you may already be thinking, uh, especially if you're somewhat new to the, to the bigger story of scripture, the, of scripture, the true story that God is telling about the world in scripture, uh, you may be thinking, you know, that, that is great for Abram, and, and I'm sure this is a wonderful story. But what does this promise of land have to do with us almost 4,000 years later and 6,000 miles away from what used to be Canaan and the Middle East? Well, we find out clearly in the New Testament, and it is hinted at and prophesied 
in the old, that the promised land of Canaan is ultimately a sign pointing to something much greater. The Canaan is a miniature and imperfect version of a completely renewed heaven and earth promised to all who will trust in Christ. We're told in Romans 8 that, that Christ came and is coming again to set the creation itself free from its bondage to corruption. The New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abram too looked forward to this greater day when his promised offspring, Jesus, would come. I'm going to read a little excerpt from Hebrews 11 for you. Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, he desires a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Now, Abram really was looking forward in faith to ancient Near Eastern Canaan. And Canaan really did become the land of Israel, Abram's descendants. But the writer of Hebrews confirms that the Canaan ultimately prefigured the heavenly country to come, and that is what Abram was ultimately longing for in faith. This is why we sometimes sing the song here, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. It's not because, we don't sing that because we're, we're trying to relive the Old Testament, which would be a little strange. Because it's because we're singing about the heavenly Canaan. As fertile and abundant as ancient Near Eastern Canaan may have been, we along with Abram are longing for a better country a world without corruption and calamity, without futility and frustration, a world without famine and fighting, where there is peace among all the families of the earth and even within creation itself. This was Abram's longing. This is the longing of all of our hearts. And so when we read our passage this morning, we are reminded that just as surely as God promised Canaan to Abram and his offspring, he promises to both Abram and us the new heavens and earth. And so the substance of this promise to Abram in verse 7 is not so far off from us. It is a promise to us too, albeit in seed form, but it is a promise to us as well. And we need to see this because it's only when we long for this heavenly country ourselves that we are able to truly enter into this exchange between Abram and God. Only then will it truly grip our hearts. That said, next, next we see the weakness of human understanding. In verses 2 and 3, Abram wrestles with how God is going to make this amazing promise come true. You can see it in the text. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Hebrew scholar Victor Hamilton says that this could be translated, O oh Lord God, what purpose will, you, will your gifts serve if I die childless? 
Either way, the, the point is that there needed to be both a people coming from Abram and a land to inherit in order for God's promise to come true. Eliezer of Damascus is, is the head servant in Abram's house. He is, he's the Mr. Carson of the entourage. And like Downton Abbey, there is no male descendant or any descendant in Abram's case to inherit the estate. And so Abram both questions God's promise and respectfully voices a complaint. Behold, or, or look, you've given me no offspring. Abram was struggling mightily with how God is going to bring about this promise. It does not appear to be possible. And by human account, it, it can't be done. As we saw last week, Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren, and she is past childbearing age. I almost called this, this point the weakness of our faith. And that would be accurate. That would not be wrong. Abram, as, as well as all of us, uh, often struggled to believe in God's promises. But I wanted to avoid any impression that, that Abram's question, or questions, and his complaint are, devoid, are divorced from his faith. Quite the opposite. I believe that God bringing, or I believe that Abram going to God with his questions, seeking real answers, seeking confirmation, not shutting down or closing his ear to God's word, is actually evidence of his faith. You see, Abram's not throwing out smoke screens or, or academic abstractions for the sake of abstraction. He is sincerely wrestling with the promises of God. He has a faith that is sincerely seeking to understand. And so this passage invites us to do the same with our questions and our concerns. It invites us to bring those questions to God and to his word. In verse 8, the second cycle in the conversation, Abram asked yet again, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? Abram desires confirmation of God's promise. And that leads us to our final point. God's assurance in our weakness, which I would say is the heart of this passage. God's assurance in our weakness. How does God respond to Abram's questions and complaint in verses 2 and 3 and then again in verse 8? Well, both times God assures Abram through his word as well as a sign accompanying that word. In verse 4, the word is short and sweet. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Abram needed to hear the promise repeated and perhaps clarified. And then there is a word and sign together in verse 5. Look toward the heaven, God says, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I know that, that many of you live far enough outside of Charlottesville uh, so that you can regularly see the, the night sky uh, Perhaps even on a, on a nightly basis, you're able to get a clear view of the night sky. And, and that is it's one thing I don't particularly like about living in the big city of Charlottesville. 
Um, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of light pollution, okay? Um, but even for those of us who do not have daily access to panoramic views of the night sky, we can probably remember times, and perhaps even recently, remember times where we have been blown away by the immensity and awesomeness of God displayed in the skies. And so I have to think that God is saying to Abram, the former moon god worshiper, by the way, Abram, if I can hang all these countless stars in the sky, I can also give you offspring and multiply them. It seems to be an instance in which God is using uh, what we call special revelation, which is his specific redemptive word to his people, together with what we call general revelation, his revelation of himself and all of creation, in order to bolster Abram's faith. And God does something similar with, with all of us, all of his children. When we come to faith by receiving his redemptive word, God's general revelation in creation that we were once blinded to, or at least partially blinded to, now begins to bolster our faith in his redemptive promises and in his power, including his power to bring forth a child from a dead womb for Abram and his power to raise many sons and daughters from the grave through the resurrection of his son. We begin to see that all of creation, whether under a microscope or in a landscape, points to God's power and promises. In the second cycle of, of promise, questioning, assurance, God's word to Abram is more involved, and the accompanying sign is more personal. Through God's words, in verses 13 to 16, Abram is warned that the promised inheritance is not going to come without significant trials and tests of faith, just as ours will not. And he's promised that it will definitely not come in his lifetime, which is very possibly true for all of us as well, that our promised land will not come during this lifetime. God tells Abraham that there's first going to be 400 years under Egyptian rule, which in God's sovereignty also happens to be when the iniquity of the iniquity or the sin of the current inhabitants of Canaan has reached its fullness, as we see at the end of verse 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? Well, as theologian Bruce Waltke says, just as God does not send the flood until the earth is fully corrupt and does not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until he has satisfied himself that not even a quorum of righteous are left in the city, so Israel's conquest and settlement of Canaan is based on God's absolute justice, not on naked aggression. And this conflict uh, with an eventual victory over these nations is pictured for us and for Abram in verse 11, where the birds of prey come down on the carcasses. Birds of prey are, are, are regularly, regularly symbolic of antagonistic nations. But Abram drives them Away, And so God gives Abram and he gives us a picture of God's protection from Egypt and protection uh, and ultimate victory over the nations of Canaan. But what about the rest 
uh, of this accompanying sign of assurance. What is going on here with all of this blood and smoke and fire? There's plenty of evidence from the ancient Near East um, that it was common for two parties undertaking a solemn agreement to literally cut a covenant with one another. And so what would happen is that the two parties uh, would walk together between the torn flesh and over the spilled blood of the animals, symbolically stating that if either party should break the covenant by not fulfilling their covenant promises, may their fate be that of the animals. This understanding is actually confirmed later in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 34, where God says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between the parts. The unbreakable vow between Severus Snape and Narcissa Malfoy seems to be based on this type of ceremony here in Genesis 15, where each party agrees to die if they break the vow. The crucial difference in Genesis 15 is that only one party passes between the pieces, and that is God. He represents himself, as he often does in Scripture, by a cloud of smoke coming out of the pot and by a flame of fire rising from the torch. In the book of Exodus, we regularly see God's presence through the pillar of smoke, or the cloud of smoke and the pillar of fire. And so God, in this ceremony, is not only promising to Abraham that he will be absolutely faithful to fulfill his covenant promises, to bless Abram with offspring, and to bring them into Canaan, and ultimately into the heavenly country. Not only, not only is he promising that, God is also taking the potential curse should Abram and his offspring fail to meet their covenant obligations of obedience to their God. Friends, this is what Jesus is doing for us and for Abram on the cross. He is taking this curse. His flesh was torn and his blood poured out for the many failures of all of God's covenant children to fulfill our covenant obligations. Hebrews 10 makes this very explicit. And reveals that this rending of flesh is the way into communion with God. Listen to this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. If you remember when we read Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve, after, after Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, what do we see? We see this cherubim, this angel who has a flaming sword guarding the way into the garden. Meredith Klein, Old Testament scholar, helped me to see this connection. He says, for outcast Adam and Eve, entrance into the holy presence in Eden was only by way of the judgment sword. Only by a death passage could access be gained to the tree of life. Jesus walked that death passage to open back the way into Eden and to bring this full circle that Eden which was always intended to be extended throughout the earth 
is in fact now the new heavens and new earth that is coming. Whereas we see at the end of Revelation, this heavenly garden city of the new Jerusalem descending from heaven and renewing the earth and bringing healing to the nations. It is difficult to imagine God giving Abram a more certain word and sign of assurance than this covenant ceremony. What is known as his self-maledictory oath. But you see, it serves as an even better word and sign for us because we get to see the fulfillment of it. The good news of the finished work of Christ proclaimed to us in a regular meal as a sign accompanying this word. A meal also signifying the flesh of Christ torn for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us that we might enter into the holy place that we might enter back into fellowship with God. By way of conclusion, uh, Abram models for us how to respond to this good news. Sandwiched between the two cycles of of conversation, we find Abram's response to God's promises in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord credited or counted it to him as righteousness. Now surely Abram's faith had been built up through the word that God had just spoken to him and the sign of the stars that God had just given to him. But but given that Abram had already been believing the Lord since God made his initial promise back in Genesis 12, it's, it's probably best to take this as a summary statement of Abram's relationship with the Lord and as a break or even as a connector between this two part narrative. As we've already seen, Even Abram's questions come from a place of faith, seeking understanding. And note that he's asking questions before and after verse 6. And as a result of this, this trust in God, this faith in God, it is counted to Abraham or credited to Abraham as righteous living. Many of you will know that this, this one verse becomes foundational in the New Testament for proving that salvation has always come by faith in Christ and not by our good works. Rather, good works flow out of salvation and out of a relationship with God. And what I love about Genesis 15 is that it doesn't just make this statement about the righteousness that comes by faith. The covenant ceremony here is is actually one of the best explanations in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, of how that righteousness by faith works. This ceremony reveals to us that that we have a God who, who steps into our shoes and who fulfills the covenant obligations on our behalf. A God who entered into the world in the person of Christ And who lived out God's ways, who lived in perfect obedience to God, who lived the life that we were created to live. And in spite of living this perfect, righteous life, then he takes the curse that all of us deserve and he went to the cross. He took the death passage for us so that we, through his torn flesh, could be brought back in to the presence of God. That we might have fellowship with him. On the other hand, if we are seeking 
to, to earn a God's favor, being a good person. That is like telling God that, that, that we'll walk through those torn animals with him. And that unbreakable vow would break us because we have all fallen short. We have all fallen short of the holiness and glory and beauty of God's ways. Let us never say, I'll walk through that with you. We need Jesus to walk through it for us. Because he died for us and then he conquered death for us. So that through union with him, we are brought in to the presence of God. And so if you're looking for application today, it's to believe in the Lord. As Abram did. To trust in the Lord, Jesus for your righteousness, is to bring your questions and even your, your complaints to him in faith, seeking understanding. It's to receive God's word this week, to receive his signs of assurance, and to live this day and this week like Abraham, longing for and looking toward the heavenly country to come, not placing our hope in the good things of this world, but placing our hope in the heavenly country. We have a God who is pleased to continue to come to us as he did to Abram again and again to give us assurance of his great promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we praise you for revealing this, this strange ceremony with Abraham, that is such a sure and good sign of your faithfulness to us. Lord, we thank you that we live in a time where we got to see how you fulfilled that through your son. Lord, I pray for my own heart, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here, that this week we would look to him, that we would look to, to you, Jesus, for our righteousness. Lord, that we would go to you knowing that we have been cleansed, that we have been washed by your blood, and we would live in fellowship with you, seeking um, to be filled by your spirit. Would you fill us that we may begin to live out your ways more and more. In Christ's name, amen.